So welcome to the Browser podcast, Writers We Admire, in which we talk to writers we admire. I'm Robert Cottrell, editor of the Browser, and I'm joined today by David Papineau, who is the Professor of Philosophy at King's College London and at the Graduate Centre of the City University of New York. Right now we're sitting in David's office at King's College in London. David, welcome. It's very good to be here, Robert. David, so readers of the browser are likely to know you best by your writing for the TLS, most recently an article about Daniel Dennett's latest book and his theory of consciousness, and also a discussion of why women are underrepresented in philosophy, both of which produced quite lively discussions. But at the same time, you're writing scholarly academic papers at the rate of two or three a year, which are in a somewhat different voice or register. And what I'm wondering is, are you giving readers of the TLS a simplified version of the sort of thinking that goes into your academic papers, or are you really two different writers? I don't think I'm two different writers. I don't turn on a different switch when I write for a general audience as opposed to an academic audience. But I suppose I do write differently. I mean, in both cases, you try and write clearly. You want to carry the reader with you. Uh, if there is a difference, of course, it's the difference in the imagined reader. I mean, when one writes, one has a reader in mind. And when you write for an uh, academic audience or a philosophical audience, uh, well, I can just assume that they know a lot more. I don't have to explain things. So I can, I'll write stuff that would be pretty unintelligible to a general audience, but not because I'm writing differently, just because I have a different audience in mind. Could you I'm, imagine a piece of writing which was accepted both as a meaningful contribution to the advancement of philosophy and also as, an, as a piece of prose accessible to the general reader? Or is philosophy simply too technical to admit of such a piece? Interesting. Uh, some writers get pretty close. I think I think Dan Dan Dennett gets pretty close. He always writes in a very accessible way. I mean, one one difference I think in my writing is when you're writing for an academic audience, you don't really have to persuade them to read you. You've already got a kind of you know they're interested in the topic, and so you don't feel the same imperative to to entertain and amuse, so, you know, no, 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 no jokes, no stories. But, but some academic writers uh, can't help putting in jokes and stories, and, and Dan Dennis, I mean, I can think of quite a few others, so that, that makes them accessible to a general audience. I still think that the, the demands of resolving some current philosophical crux to the satisfaction of uh, the professionals uh, pulls in a different direction to... Uh, interesting the general reader. So to that extent, I'd, I'd be surprised, but I don't think it's impossible. I think there's, there's probably some topics also that are I mean, pretty mm. obvious. I mean, Russell's work on mathematical logic, not accessible to the general audience, but mm. somebody writing about, about animal rights and not getting tied up in some of the technical issues in the journals, that's uh, by its nature going to be easier for a general audience to read. Now, how is the tension between freedom of speech on the one hand and political correctness on the other playing out in the field of philosophy. Is it constraining the sort of ideas that you allow yourself to have and that you allow yourself to discuss? 
we're not so bad. So sometimes people will express an opinion and there'll be <gasps> shocks of, uh, gasps of outrage and, uh, and some kind of dismissing, but then the transgressor will stick up their hand and say, hang on, there's, there's a serious issue here, please can we discuss it? And, and in my experience, the, the philosophical community will, will kind of make an effort to try and see both sides of the story. My feeling is the philosophical community, when push comes to shove, do realise that issues should all be debated and you can't just shut somebody down, that's not the way to do things. Do you, do you find it that you're conducting yourself differently when you teach in New York versus when you teach in London? because of the uh, microaggression and political correctness uh, baselines? No, I haven't noticed any difference at all. Mm. And now you ask me to think about it, I'm not sure. Which did you think would have uh, a higher bar of political correctness? I, I'm not sure it wouldn't be higher in London than New York. I, mean, yeah. I, I think there's, there's an appropriate level of sensitivity to these issues in both places. You've written scholarly books on philosophical subjects. Your latest one is something quite different, uh, knowing the score mm. about the philosophy of sport or possibly philosophy and sport. I prefer what, philosophy and sport. What, what, what took you there? Was that, a work of, was, that, was that work or was that pleasure? I set up my own website and it had a blogging facility, so I thought, well, I, why don't I do some blogging? It's kind of fun to... To reach out, but uh, people who've done it said, "Look, if you blog, you you, you want to have a niche. Find something that that, that you uh, have things to say about, and uh, other people might be interested, but nobody else is doing it." So I thought, "All right, I'll, I'll I'll look at philosophical dimensions of sport." And so I just started off doing it as a bit of a hobby, mm -hmm. and uh, there were lots of lots of topics that I'm a keen sports person and. Uh, Nowadays, I'm, it's more watching than playing, though I still do, do some playing. And uh, I have a philosophical turn of mind. I mean, and mm. so there are things I think about sport that sports fans who don't know philosophy yet might be interesting, but a rather different slant than most of the sports writers do. So that, that's all I was doing, and it was, and it was just fun to start mm. with. There's a number of different topics I look at in the book. And the book starts off, and, and it's, it's a topic I started off and, and realised that there was something here turning a philosophical eye to sport in a way that's not really done by the official philosophers of sport. And the thing that first got me interested was just a very straightforward psychology, philosophy of psychology puzzle, quite scientific. How do people manage to hit a ball when there's less than half a second from the point it's projected at them to, and, and it's going to be spinning and swerving? And mm. how is it physically possible? How is it? How is it? How is it neurally possible? And, and if you look at the numbers, I mean, the, the milliseconds involved, it, it really does look as if it ought to be impossible. Yet they do it, and at the same time, I had in mind, look, there's a. a it basically has to be a kind of reflex, it's so fast, but the athlete has to be focused and concentrating on what they're doing. How, how, can, how can concentration and thinking about what you're doing make a difference if something happens so fast? So that, that was, a, and clearly some sports involve that and other ones don't. I mean, not all sports are, are responding to fast approaching balls. I mean, table tennis, squash, cricket, baseball are, but golf and football for that matter mm. are, are, are not, they, they, don't, they don't raise the same questions. 
Another question I talk about a lot in the book is rules. And uh, there's the rules is written down in the rule book, the rules is applied by the referee, the, the practice that's condoned by the player, what's really the right way to conduct yourself, which mightn't be the same as the practice condoned by the players. And, uh, and so there's all these different uh, uh, sets of norms that can... And, but in some sports, they come apart much more than others. So in soccer, there's a big distance between the rules as written down and what the players think are acceptable and maybe what we think is morally acceptable. Whereas in golf, they pretty much coincide. Golfers, I mean, uh, they wouldn't dream of uh, adjusting the ball in the rough. I mean, you really wouldn't. Uh, whereas in soccer, you do all kinds of uh, improper things. So, so I mean, different, different sports raise different philosophical issues. Mm. And w would you say that you were applying some sort of philosophical apparatus in this book? Is there a difference between philosophy and sport and just thinking hard about sport? I don't think there is a difference, but that's because of my view about philosophy in general. I don't think philosophy in general is anything other than thinking hard about puzzling issues. I mean, but this is a view about the nature, nature of philosophy. And some people think that philosophy is especially to do with how we ought to live, or ethics, or mind and brain. Uh, I think philosophy is just dealing with certain kinds of, of intellectual puzzles, puzzles where our theories have some kind of hole or glitch or paradox or contradiction and we can't see how to figure it out. And it's not to do with not having enough empirical evidence, it's to do with there's some tangle in our theories and I think that can happen, happen anywhere. So a lot of the problems I look at in the book identity of teams over time, identity of persisting objects in general, or the, or the things about fast sporting skills, or, or, or the rules of the game and what's moral, uh, I think they're just puzzling in themselves. I don't come along with a, a bunch of philosophical ideas and apply them to sport. I just look at sport and find things there puzzling, but I think uh, puzzling in a philosophical way. And that's how I think about philosophy generally, just look at anything and sometimes you will find something that's a philosophically puzzling issue. David Papineau, it's no problem at all to see why, based on that fascinating conversation, you are a writer that the browser admires. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to The Browser, which you can do for $34 a year by going to thebrowser.com. The Browser recommends the best five or six pieces of writing worth reading each day. <laughs>